0: Hello, I'm Farah Jassat, host of the Intelligence Squared podcast. This week we ask, what do
1: X-Men, zombie films and Game of Thrones have to do with the rise of Donald Trump? To be honest, I'm not sure either. Daniel is the producer of this week's podcast and can tell us more about it. Daniel, what do they have to do with Donald Trump?
2: Well, I guess the idea behind this podcast, I should first say, was the fact that we don't really explore much contemporary popular culture on the Intelligence Squared podcast. And what a better way to do it than to kind of tie it into the themes that we always explore at Intelligence Squared. And as you know, we are very kind of political in the the topics that we look at. And so we got the renowned American cultural critic Peter Biskind to talk to Helen Lewis, who is an associate editor at the New Statesman, about how the rise of extremes in popular culture has led to the polarisation of our politics.
1: Hello, I'm Helen Lewis, Associate Editor of The New Statesman, and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Peter Biskin, cultural critic and author of The Sky is Falling, How Vampires, Zombies, Androids and Superheroes Made America Great for Extremism. Um, Peter, as that title suggests, there's a fairly uh, straightforward, but in some ways complicated, thesis that underpins the book about the way that uh, cinema and film and TV have become more extreme and how that might reflect the current political climate. When did that thesis kind of come to you? When did it occur to you?
2: Well, um, this, in some ways, this, this book is a sequel to the first book I ever wrote, which was called Seeing is Believing, which was about Hollywood films in the 1950s, which was an era of bipartisan consensus culture. Um, politically, uh, the government was run by a coalition of like, um, uh, sort of moderate Republicans and right, right right-leaning Democrats. And that was reflected in the culture. They agreed on, on, you know, a, a number of issues sufficient to basically run the country for, you know, from World War II through the Obama administration with a few ups and downs Called Vietnam, Watergate, and the Reagan administration. Um, uh, so I, that book was about how the Hollywood films of the fifties reflected that and that centrist culture. Now I just thought, you know, looking, seeing what's happening in America, which is extreme. You know, as you all know, is extreme polarization. Uh, I thought it'd be interesting to come back to that thesis fifty odd years later and see what had happened to that consensus culture, and it was clear that it had pretty much imploded or disintegrated and bifurcated into or polarized into extreme right and extreme left. So then it became an issue, a question of seeing, de- defining uh, extreme right and extreme left, and comparing it to the sort of baseline culture, the centrist culture that's still you know existed i mean there's still you know some very popular shows that reflect the the consensus i think i definitely um
1: i definitely agree with the part of your thesis about polarization and i think that the pew research for example has done huge amounts of stuff into um political polarization in america and you actually get a, a huge spike in for example people saying not only my you know the uh, other side wrong but they're a danger to america that's right. spiked right. up in in the last 20 or, or so years the bit I found more chewy was the kind of idea about uh this extremism being reflected in in film because you say for example that you know avatar is an extreme film and i from a kind of european social democrat kind of point of view it doesn't you know the idea that corporations are kind of bad and environmentalism is good from a from a British perspective, I don't think that seems quite as maybe as extreme as it does from an American perspective
2: well. That's interesting. I mean, America may be way to the uh, right of um, Britain in that, in that, culturally speaking, in that respect. But it's not only that um, corporation. The corporation is bad and exploitative. But the U.S. Marines uh, are villains, the bad guys. And this is at a time when uh, America was fighting in Afghanistan and um, in Iraq. So to say that American marines were, um, you know, the enforcers of, you know, of this exploitative uh, corporation was extremely controversial. And then the second part of that is that the um, aliens, which are often portrayed as uh, hostile and aggressive in right-wing films and also in centrist films and and TV shows as well, are the heroes. And not only are they the heroes and victims But I mean, not only are they the victims, first they're the victims, but then then they fight back and defeat the Americans. But not only that, the American hero uh, essentially flees the human and at the end fuses with an alien. So, you know, he's accused at one point by uh, uh, Colonel Quaritch, who's uh, r- you know runs the military arm of the of the uh, corporation, is accused of abandoning his the home team, you know, abandoning uh, America, abandoning the what, what what is left of what America stands for. But he also abandons his species. Which so, in that sense, it seems to me an extremely left wing film.
1: I thought that was a very interesting taxonomy that you come up and you do it with superheroes and, and more broadly as well. The idea that, you know, in left-wing alien films, sometimes you know, the monsters are, are us quite often, right? That, right. Uh, rather than the kind right. of this alien threat's coming down and we need to kind of tool up and get our guns and fight them off. That more, uh, I guess, District 9 is an example of that. And then actually the kind of the reflection is that hu- you know, humans are the ones doing bad things. And actually exactly. aliens might often very, you know, be kind of peace loving. Exactly. Um, but tell me a bit more about how you how you kind of kind of end up classifying superhero films into kind of right or left wing.
2: Well, um, the Marvel um, the Marvel films, uh, which I consider for the most part left wing, not you know entirely or consistently, but for the most part, they started during world, before World War II, and there's a famous uh, cover of a. Uh, a Mar- it was then. It was not a Marvel comic. I think it was called Timely Comics, which became either was bought by Marvel or somehow evolved into Marvel. A picture uh, uh, on the cover of one of them was Captain America uh, punching Hitler in the jaw. This was about a year before Pearl Harbor, when America's official policy was neutrality, and the cover was so controversial that the uh, the uh, people who did it. Uh, were had to had to get police protection to um, protect them from the German American Bund because uh, neutrality was, I mean, intervention was still a very uh, controversial and to some degree left wing um, project. Um, since then, uh, you know, uh, World War II and fascism and the struggle against fascism has pops up repeatedly in all those comics, the X Men. Um, the Avengers, uh, Iron Man, uh, c- consistently throughout uh, throughout all those stories, you have the, you know, the villains are a secret organization called Hydra, which was started um, by the Waffen-SS. And it penetrates all levels of American government, the president, the senators, they all say, you know, secretly they have a sort of secret handshake and they say uh, Heil Hydra, which is not that different from... Mm. Um, hail trump (laughs) (laughs) i think one of the
1: things that was surprising to me i used to watch the x-men animated series when i was a a kid and i never really got until the reboot and the brian singer reboot um just how much the idea of mutants as others is so part of uh, of that. And and the film's very made that very explicitly. You know, they have that scene which you talk about in the book about Eric Lentz who becomes Magneto. His parents are taken away at Auschwitz, right? And he, he pulls the gate. He's trying to get right. back to them and he bends the gate. And that's when he first discovers his power. And then there is an analogue of what happened, we know, with Nazi scientists in concentration camps testing on him to see what his his right. powers is were. So the X-Men... Series has kind of got a, a bound on it, hasn't it? It's not timeless. Like there's, I know they've mucked about with chronology with Days of Future Past and Logan, which I thought was a spectacularly good film, um, but it's bounded to that bit of second, the second half of, uh, of, of 20th century history. Right? You can't. Magneto does not exist without the Holocaust.
2: Right, and he keeps they keep coming back to it. I mean, there are two films that start, you know, or have Auschwitz scenes in them, and then you know, Singer has said that you know he was adopted felt like an outsider. He was Jewish and he's uh, gay. So he saw the X-Men as, you know, some degree reflections of himself. And they are outsiders and they're treated like outsiders in the movies by the um, by the authorities, which are uh, constantly uh, attacked as either being corrupt or disappearing when they're needed most, you know, going AWOL. And Actually, the, le- the far left and the far right share that attitude of hostility towards the authorities, whether it's the federal government, agencies of the federal government. They're either not there, like NASA or the CDC, mm. Center for Disease Control, in a lot of um, shows, uh, or the or the actual federal government. I mean, these superheroes are always being called in front of Senate committees, and being yeah. you know, and there's a seen in one of the films, they all sort of run together for me now, where Black Widow, played by Scarlett Johansson, is, dumps a bunch of um, uh, secret files onto the internet, like Snowden. And the film is on her side, not on the side of the Senate committee that drags her in and threatens her with jail. Um, so I think that the...
1: You're right, and in the first X-Men film, the, the, the singer one, you've got the senator who is kind of a classic... Republican senator who's later caught with a bloke in a bathroom, right? He's got that yeah. sort of vibe yeah. about him. And he then Magneto turns him into a mutant because he wants him to see what it's what it's like. And but you're right, but they're exactly the same distrust of authority. Authority is presented constantly as something that can't protect you, which I guess is the theme that runs very strongly through a lot of zombie films, right? With that libertarian strain that if it all goes horribly wrong, you need your tin food and your guns.
2: Yeah. I mean, in uh, The Walking Dead, um, the government uh, is uh, just a a no-go from the very start. There's no internet. There's no cell service. The army is defeated. um, And the, the CDC blows up. There's a scene in the first season where They take refuge in the CDC, Center for Disease Control building, and there's only one uh, scientist left, and the building is wired to explode when the generators go off because there's no power, and at the end end of the scene, the generators do run down, and the building is uh, blown up. So every institution, every agency of uh, a centralized government is either destroyed or just a non-player. And that's also true in... um, um, a true blood where, you know where which you... is
1: one a, a series that i absolutely adored and i guess for anybody who hasn't um seen it it was an hbo series uh which the premise which is on bon temps in louisiana right? Right, it's very sw- right. i watched it in through a british winter because it was just it was so sweaty and hot all the way through it kind of cheered me up right but everybody there is there's a lot of supernatural stuff going on but the as you recount in the book the start is bill the vampire walks into the diner where Suki is a, a waitress and she's telepathic, but she can't hear his thoughts, right? That's, right, that's one right. of the first things that she finds exciting about him. Uh, and he's attacked by vampire hunters because there's a complicated thing going on with blood in True Blood, which is vampires have come out of the shadows because True Blood, I like, I think you describe it as the Diet Coke of blood, right? Right. Synthetic blood. Um, But also their blood is like, you know, kind of angel dust for humans, right? It's an incredibly potent hallucinogen and sexual stimulant and all kinds of stuff. So he's attacked in the parking lot uh, and she rescues him and is very badly wounded. And then he lets her drink his blood and they're kind of bonded together. But from that, I think there's, there's an extraordinary amount. It's an Alan Ball series, isn't it? So there's an extraordinary amount of depth in the kind of exploration of that theme from then on. In terms of, I mean, the bit that always sticks with me is when um, the friend of Alexander Skarsgård's character turns up, who's the vampire, who's three thousand years old. Do you remember mm, him? Right. And they say, and he says, "Yes, I knew you're Jesus." Right. <laughs> but he's but he's lived too long, and he just wants right. to to die. Right.
2: Well, for me, the, one of the most interesting things about that series is that uh, you know the the center, uh, which I you know we were speaking about a minute ago. Um, their their ideology was pluralism, which uh, you know emphasized um, inclusion, diversity, in many ethnicities and um, religions and so forth, living to, living together under the quote big tent, which mm-hmm. they spoke about a lot. Um, and the theory was that the more um, people you gather of different backgrounds under the tent, the more stable society, and the, the fewer. Crazies outside the tent throwing Molotov cocktails into it, um, but not everybody was invited to, to, to enter the tent. And the so-called uh, extremists of left and right uh, were too were you know rejected the principles of, of the center and therefore were unwelcome in the tent. And they had to be either somehow manipulated into the tent or killed, one way or the other. And so the center drew the line. It's even though it it's it embraced diversity and inclusion in principle. In reality, it it excluded a lot of people, a lot of positions, a lot of political positions and ideological positions. And one of the things that's interesting about True Blood is that um, uh, the human character, um, you know, who falls in love with Bill, the vampire...
1: Not Sookie, but I was going to say that she's... Yeah,
2: Sookie Sookie wants to become a vampire and the vampire wants to become human and... um, they, in some sense, they want to uh, transgress the bounds, the boundaries that that um, they begin with, and to some degree they can do that. Um, you know, they exchange blood, and there's a special bond between them. But eventually, um, uh, centris—it's a centri—I think a centrist series—centrism calls a halt, and they can't exchange. You know, uh, um, the vamp- bill, the vampire keeps em- emphasizing that. Um, Vampires are really different from humans, and they'll, be, they'll turn on humans, they'll betray humans, you can't trust them. And she doesn't believe him because she's so sort of naive, and he's so charming. But eventually, um, she realizes that indeed she can be a, a sort of vampire groupie, but she can't become a vampire herself. And you can see the lines being drawn um, for the center. The center doesn't include everybody, it does exclude ex- the extremes on either side.
1: I think that's interesting because, yeah, it, it, immediately when I started watching it, it reminded me of, of Buffy and then Angel, which has got a similar predicament, which is that Angel is a vampire but not a vampire in that he is he's got a human soul back, so he feels guilt. and And then reading your book, I I felt the link very strongly between Bill in True Blood and um, Professor X and the X Men because they're both part of this outsider group trying to assimilate into the mainstream and trying to constantly negotiate the fact that there are extremists on their own side who don't want to. Don't want peace, you know they, the the vampire extremists or Magneto in the case of the X Men, and also that their position they're always they never quite trust themselves, and I think that's one of the things that's interesting, and it, particularly in the case of True Blood, I think being set in the American Deep South is interesting because there's a scene in the first series where Bill goes to a meeting of the you know the daughters of the American Revolution, one of these kind of Um, Confederate Historical Reenactment Society and is kind of horrified by the way they've kind of fetishized the the Civil War and was kind of like it really wasn't, you know, this kind of glorious freedom. Mm -hmm. It was like any war. It was just a horrible, mud-filled, you know, horror show. But it's bounded to its culture in a way, I guess, that the X-Men is in the same way.
2: Well, you know, one of the interesting things about the – which you just reminded me of about uh, True Blood is that you have – uh, good humans and bad humans mm-hmm. you know it 's sort of centrist humans and extremist humans on one side, and you have good vampires and bad vampires uh, extremist vampires and sort of assimilate vampires who want yeah. to assimilate on the other side and you think it 's about vampires against humans, but it, actually it 's about the extremists on both sides against the centrist on both sides or, or the or the people who want to assimilate and the extremists on both sides have more in common than they do with their fellow vampires. D- ditto, the extremist humans or the centrist humans have more in common with the centrist vampires than they do with the extremist humans on their side. So it's really a show that eventually boils down to extremists versus the center.
1: That's fat Yeah, I never thought of it like that. But you're right, both sides are literally trying to tap the blood of the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, in order, And they are both kind of parasites, I guess, in the way, and, and are being represented as people who don't make a contribution to a, a, cent, a stable mm-hmm. centre and a block. Well, I could talk about True Blood for hours for because <laughs> as we head into another British winter, but let's just take a quick break.
0: Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash squared.
1: And we're back with Peter Biskin, author of The Sky is Falling, How Vampires, Zombies, Androids and Superheroes Made America Great for Extremism. I wanted to talk to you um, a bit about your broader career, because you've been writing about Hollywood for quite a long time now, I think it's fair to say. Um, Easy Rider's Raging Bulls was about the 70s in Hollywood. Um, Down and Dirty Pictures was about Harvey Weinstein's Miramax. What are the big trends that you have seen in that broader timescale that you've been writing about it?
2: Well, I mean, I think the the most striking trend today is um, the way superhero movies have colonised Hollywood. Uh, You know, the... Um, the middle has dropped out. I mean, you either have um, these huge two hundred fifty million dollar, three hundred million dollar budget movies, or else you have uh, really inexpensive independent films. But nobody's making sixty million, seventy million dollar movies, which sound like a lot, but for Hollywood, that's um, that's sort of the middle range. And the reason is mostly, I think, economic, which is that the the rise of the international market, which used to be a junior partner uh, to the domestic market, but now it's quite a bit larger than the domestic market. And China is predicted to be the biggest um, market in the world by the year 2020. And given this uh, the importance of the international market, um, you know, action travels better than um, character-driven movies or script-driven movies, movies that are sort of uh, in texture, very American, don't travel as well as these, you know, as, as I said, the action movies. So I think that's the, the main trend that you see today. And um, I keep thinking that's going to peter out eventually and we're going to go, you know, that people are going to get tired of them. But they don't seem to be any, I mean, some of the franchises show their signs, show signs of age. You mentioned Logan earlier uh, and some of the, you know, some of the superheroes are dying.
1: Yeah, and, I mean the plot of Logan is Professor X has dementia, so it, right. and you know there's that that story is kind of run as far as it can do.
2: And the, and the you know apparently they're going to end the Avengers as we know it, um, and but they're also introducing new superheroes and younger ones for the next generation. So God knows how long this can go on, um, you know. And
1: but Solo didn't do that well, did it? The latest Star no, Wars. Uh... No,
2: well, the Star Wars just seem to be petering out. Well, I never was a huge Star Wars fan to begin with, but. Um,
1: Tell me why. That, I just, and some so people it, regard that as heresy, but I regard that as a perfectly normal opinion.
2: Well, I, I, you know, it was Lucas at the very start had trouble writing, can't write virtually, you know, and there's a famous... Um, oh, the great Harrison
1: Ford and, quote. Yeah, the
2: Harrison Ford anecdote. He said, George, uh, can't we can't speak this shit. You, you know, can type this
1: shit, George, but I sure as can't, hell can't say yeah, it or something yeah, like
2: exactly that. Yeah, can't say it. And George says, say it anyway and don't, <laughs> and don't play it for camp because he was deadly serious. Um and, you know, and uh, <laughs> so I was never, you know, and that's been true of all the Star Wars movies. They just don't, they're, you know, they just don't interest me for some reason, I don't know.
1: I think the worst of the uh, Avengers universe feel very much in debt to Star Wars in that they can become sometimes they are a really paint-by-numbers hero's journey you know that, that the, the famous idea the script-writing idea that, uh, the mythic script-writing idea that George Lucas took of you know the kind of idea that, that the hero goes out from his normal world and experiences, he has a mentor to, all these things changes and a moment a great crisis comes you know and then there's death and rebirth and as I was watching Doctor Strange the Marvel film with Benedict Cumberbatch I was like tick, 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 tick and lit- mm-hmm. to the point of literal death you know he I think his heart stops for a couple of minutes on an operator table and he kind of astrally projects for a bit. And I was kind of like, at this point when I'm, I can see the underpinning so clearly, then I can see why so many writers have decided to to move to TV. Um, David Hare, the playwright and uh, screenwriter who won an Oscar for The Hours, I think, said he much prefers writing TV because it's not, the fo- you know, you can do a whole episode that's just a car chase and then you can do a whole episode that's just two people in a room, whereas the now movie seems so formulaic and you know what, exactly what you're going to expect each tent peg, right? Well,
2: well the corollary of um, movies being, car- you know, colonized by um, the superhero um, genre is, yes, that anybody with a, um, a grain of creativity has fled to television. And, you know, we're living in a golden age of of TV right now and, you know, there's so many good shows... It's impossible to keep up, and people are starting to complain. You know, can't we go back to a two-hour movie? I just finished watching seventy-two hours of a French show called A uh, French Village, which is about the uh, German occupation of a fictional French village at the starting, you know, during World War II, and it's a fantastic series. But seventy-two hours is a big chunk of time, you know, and uh, and that's a especially long one. I think it was seven seasons, but uh the time commitment required for to watch some of these series is enormous and um that will probably eventually change
1: i think there's another problem as well which is that very often there is a, a one series is commissioned over say 10 or you know netflix like long series so that and and then people come up with a great idea that fits that and there is you know there is a story that they tell in that and then, this, as it was always the problem with kind of network sitcoms and stuff like that, right, is that then actually as it becomes more pop, most popular, it becomes less and less good because actually there was only that much of story – you know, the story's run out of road with the characters that it has.
2: That does happen. But I think, you know, remarkably, some of the series have a long lifespan. I mean uh – I mean, there's a wonderful British series called Peaky Blinders, uh, oh, yeah. which I'm completely obsessed with. And there aren't enough episodes for me. You know, six episodes a season, you know, I, I love 12, you know. but um,
1: I was very happy when I watched Succession uh, and I, I got to the end of the first series and I thought, well, I just kind of feel like that was the overture. And I just want to see what, because you're, you're right, because it was character driven. I was like, I want to mm-hmm. see what these characters do next rather than it being mm-hmm. so specifically plot driven that you felt that it's kind of that's it and it's done and the changes happened and people have got to their end point
2: well i i just start i just watched an, a second second season of a series called Ozark on Netflix mm. which is also very good and the second season's better than the first season so you know i uh, as i said sometimes it's surprising how um, some of these series actually do have a a, a longer lifespan than one season but I know what you mean. I mean, I think it's certainly true that certain series peter out after one season.
1: One of the other things I want to talk to you about is Game of Thrones, because you talk about that a lot in a book. And actually, I interviewed Russell T. Davis, the former um, Doctor Who showrunner, and he said the fascinating thing about Game of Thrones is, is it actually doesn't really have episodes. It's actually just one long gobbet now, they, 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 and, and you feel almost arbitrarily chopped up into um, episodes, which again is a very different way of thinking about storytelling because you are just putting the whole thing out at once. It's, you, know, you don't really have to kind of think about it in episodic terms the way that you might have done before. But what else does Game of Thrones do that you think is interesting?
2: Well, I think uh, what, one, of the, one of the things that fascinated me is that it seems to have um, sort of turned around in the seventh season. Uh, and, by, and by turned around, I mean that throughout the, whole, the entirety of the first six seasons, you have these warring families, these, these tribes that are fighting each other, for, and some of them are fighting two or, two or three other families. Uh, but what happens in the seventh season is finally the uh, White Walkers, the zombies from the north, appear, and they're a threat to all the families. No single family can defeat them. So suddenly after um, six seasons of, of uh, tribalism, uh, John Snow, the King of the North, is coalition building, and alliance yes. building, and uh, which is a, you know, an ex-centrist strategy, of, of uh, you know, so the family he's trying to he's tr- he's taking the opposite tack. He's trying to get the families to work together, against this against the White Walkers, and the family which refuses, of course, is. Queen, you know the the Lannisters, the Lannisters, and because and she just says, you know, forget it, screw all these families, you know, I'll do what I, screw all this coalition building, I'll do what I want. Who cares, you know? And she's therefore an extremist, and um, you know, she's the mother of Joffrey, who I've always felt was the sort of junior Trump, you know, had who had no, no scruples, no, you know, contempt for the rule of law. Just did whatever he felt like doing.
1: Yeah, and crucially, kind of no forward planning ability in that way that very young children just have no idea that if you, you know, if they throw the ice cream on the floor, then the ice cream is no longer available for eating. Right. And then they're furious <laughs> about that, which I think is also why I would say it was one of the things that characterises the Trump presidency. Right, like, exactly. why has this action had this consequence? But I thought the interesting thing about um, that is that you know George R. R. Martin is a very political writer. He gave an interview. I'm going to say to Playboy. Well, he talked about Lord of the Rings and people obviously compare Lord of the Rings to Game of Thrones a lot because it's got, you know, the same kind of sort of, you know, big men, shouty men marching around in furs aspect to it. But he said, you know, he was always fascinated by the question of what was Aragorn's tax policy, right? Like, which is, <laughs> you know, I we, I once commissioned a blog from one of our economics writers about the fact that, you know, when Smorg was killed, the dragon, all that gold would have suddenly flooded out into the economy of, of Middle Earth, which of course, the most enormous economic shock, mm-hmm. It would have been a ter- really a terrible thing to happen. And there is no attention to that kind of detail in in those very big mythic stories. But Game of Thrones is a mythic story that also kind of really engages with the grubby bits of politics, like you say, the coalition building.
2: Well, that's what's so fascinating about it, which is a lot of people wouldn't watch it and don't watch it because it's a fantasy set in this, you know, kind of mysterious uh, fantasy past. And, you know, when you pay attention to it, it's all about politics and power and... uh, And climate change. And and climate change. Exactly. And... uh, Um, I mean, you know, the North is cold, (laughs) we're we're facing the opposite, but it's basically climate change. So, you know, and and I think it's true that all these shows on some level are about, you know, having ideology and are about politics in one way or another, if you just look at them in the right way. And these are not value judgments because, um, we were talking earlier about, uh, Deadpool, but you know, it's
1: very fun, but also very wrong.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I, I was I've always been a big fan of Twenty Four, which is one of the uh, right, rightest of the right wing shows, and it's very well done. It's very well executed, and it's enjoyable. You know, so.
1: But the premise of Twenty Four kind of is sometimes it's okay to do a light bit of torturing if it gets the information out of people and, right, and saves well, the world. right? Yes,
2: exactly. I mean, not even a light bit. I mean. Uh, uh, you know, they got a lot of flack for um, their torturing. They never stopped. You know, they, it didn't seem to faze them. Although I think in this sort of encore season, uh, Chloe, who uh, is Jack Bauer's pal and uh, partner throughout most of the seasons, she's tortured and suddenly he freaks out and tries to save and saves her. And uh, and they try to torture him as well. They send him for, quote-unquote, enhanced interrogation. So he gets to be on the other side of the um, cattle prod.
1: That's really interesting because one of the things that I have to say, I kind of really put me off Jessica Jones, which otherwise I loved as a series, was when she finally um, captures, oh... Uh, David Tennant's character, the baddie, who's got the killgrave um, and sort of locks him up and starts electrocuting it. And I don't want to see my heroes being sadistic, actually. I, I don't mind them being incredibly badly behaved. And, you know, up to that point, Jessica Jones has been fairly stroppy, uh, I think is one way to describe her. But it's, a, it's that kind of I think that power imbalance and who uses the power is always an interesting question and how they use it and how responsible they are with it. Right. A lot of these are. Um, you know, Batman is another example you talk about in the. In the book. okay, I, yeah, let's let, let's have a fight about this because you say Batman Begins is the worst of those three Batman films, which I found I found very controversial as an opinion. Why do you think that? Which
2: which one is the worst?
1: Batman Begins.
2: Batman Begins. That's the one. Yeah. Well, With the I say thought...
1: Toxin and Ra's al Ghul and Liam right.
2: uh Well, I thought the um, the casting was really weird. You know, they cast. Um, What's his name? is the uh, the Italian mob leader.
1: Oh, Tom uh, Wilkinson. Tom Wilkinson. Yeah, yeah just, I can it's see pathetic. that. pathetic. <laughs> every time he
2: opens his mouth, it's, it's like you start, start chuckling because it's he's he, so... He's
1: doing kind of low-budget Marlon Brando isn't he? Like, yeah, forget he, about
2: he, it. I know. He just yeah. can't do it. It was mostly for that, I think. It kind of ruined the film for me. Um, but, uh, I mean, again, those are well-made films. You know, they're fun to watch. But... Uh, you know, in my view, if you think of Marvel, um, Marvel superheroes as left wing, I would think the Dark Knights, which are adapted from Frank Miller. Frank Miller was extremely extremely right wing and not afraid to express his opinions. Mm. You know, in in New York, we used to have – we had that many – couple of years ago, the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement, and he called them scum and, you know, God knows what all – and those films are, and I think Christopher Nolan is essentially a right-winger, although um, I don't think necessarily he would admit it. But Interstellar, for example, is a, a weirdly, I think, right-wing film. Uh, and, and
1: you write about Dunkirk as well. as I, I, One of the things I hadn't noticed about Dunkirk is that it never names the Germans yeah, as the I enemy. Yeah, I think that's really
2: weird. Just, he's, very, he, 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 he's a formalist. He's like a film student going berserk. And he decontextualizes and dehistoricizes everything he touches. So think about Dunkirk without naming the Germans until like two-thirds of the film is over. Not not naming the enemy. There are three, I think, three or four subtitles in the beginning where it refers to the enemy. And it just popped right out at me. Well, you know, who's the enemy? The Germans. But, you know, and and, and also in the sense that it's a British, a go-it-alone film for the British. And they... They're not, they don't desert Europe, they're thrown out of Europe by an aggressor. So I think uh, it had an
1: unironic patriotism, which I found quite straight. So you've got Tom Hardy's pilot who just, you know, has, has sort of sacrifices everything and then has to land his plane on fumes. And you've got Mark Rylance's little, you know, the little boats captain. It's of a, I think there's a really interesting shift when, for example, when we stopped, uh, the way that we performed Shakespeare's Henry V in Britain really took a distinct change during the Iraq war right where people there was a famous national theatre production which was very much a kind of oh actually is it good when we go and invade other countries maybe not Mm -hmm. and since then it's it's very rare to see that play done in the sort of straightforward like god you know cry Harry for England and St George because there is an assumption that actually maybe imperialism is bad you know colonialism is bad and that infects it but but um, Dunkirk I did feel had a kind of yeah, like you say, just a sort of straightforward, nostalgic tone to it. And also, I thought, like you say, the formalist point is fascinating about Christopher and Nolan. Um, I felt it the same with the idea. You know, the Revenant is is all filmed in natural light. You kind of go, okay, but but why? And the same thing with the, in, you know, when I'm only going to do what effects I can have in camera. So there's going to be no CGI in Dunkirk. Okay, but 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 why? You know, um, is the, you know what part of the art is the kind of authenticity of that, or you know, are you just showing off? To some extent, I wonder. Well,
2: the the realism of the film, I guess, if it is realistic, um, <clears throat> uh, well, it's both. It's 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 uh, gives you, it creates a sense of authenticity and also showing off. <laughs> yeah, I guess um,
1: I guess you can't. But fault I mean, directors at, for doing at,
2: that. I mean, look at Interstellar, which is such a weird movie. I mean, you know, it starts with this planet-wide famine caused by a, bl- a blight on um, on agriculture, nothing's growing and everything. everybody's starving to death and there are food riots and so forth. So that seems to be the premise of the movie. So what? what is the cause of that? Um, it does not seem to be global warming. Uh, it seems to be, you know, weirdly it says there's too much nitrogen in the atmosphere as opposed to carbon dioxide that you would expect to see in uh, global warming. But the solution is... Um, To leave the planet altogether, not to stop burning so much carbon, if that's – I mean, actually, since it doesn't seem to be global warming, not burning carbon is irrelevant. But then leaving the planet is such a bizarre That reminds me a lot
1: of the kind of Elon Musk strain of tech billionaire, right? Or the Jeff Bezos, where it's like, I'm going to start up schools and be really philanthropic. And then people go, have you thought about just paying – you know, normal rate of corporation tax. Like, I've got all these brilliant ideas, except for the ones that, you know, over 300 years we've developed as being kind of socially sustainable.
2: Right, exactly. And then the film is full of these little nuggets of Ayn Rand wisdom, you know, where he famously says, the main character played by Matthew McConaughey famously says, we used to look up in the stars and now we're just staring down at the dirt. You know, um, you know where are the where are the geniuses? Where are the extraordinary ubermention? You know that will save us.
1: Well, talking about ubermention, one of the things that you you briefly mentioned in the book is about the kind of the. the Huge effect of a couple of, and they are men because I think whatever it is, ninety four percent of films, Hollywood films, are made by men. Only one woman, Catherine Bigelow, I think, is whatever won the bus Director Oscar, and the kind of outsized effect that Spielberg, Lucas, James Cameron have kind of have had. And there's a quote from Joss Whedon in there, who's another kind of enormously titanic, powerful figure, suggesting that actually Spielberg's nostalgia has been kind of slightly unhealthy and poisonous. How much do you think that Hollywood has been shaped by just a kind of couple of couple of visionaries, really.
2: I I mean, enormously. I mean, you know, I wrote a book about uh, the 70s, which was uh, the last golden age of Hollywood movies. And um, uh, basically, you know, that was the era of Scorsese and Coppola and, um, you know, uh, Peter Bogdanovich and Warren Beatty and Billy Freak and yada, yada, yada. Uh, And it basically, um, uh, Jaws and Star Wars ended it. You know, not... You know it didn't just slam the door i mean it it extended through the uh, end of the seventies but you know when studios realized how much money they could make on these blockbusters um they lost interest in the in the guy who made mean streets and uh and the guy who made um you know so they basically abandoned you know they had they had a they had a turned over the power to these young kids um because they were totally out of touch with their audience during the Vietnam era. And um, as soon as they realized that these kids could make movies that brought in more money than they'd ever imagined, um, they abandoned them. And they took the power back in the 80s, which was kind of a dead zone. Uh, And uh, and it was Spielberg and Lucas, really, who pioneered all that. And, you know, they were reviving... Uh, the, you know, the the Sunday, the Saturday afternoon serials of the 30s, you know, and Lucas, you know, they had no use for the um, ex- kind of experimental edge to 70s movies, and they, Lucas said, you know, let's go back and teach kids the basic right and wrong, white hats and black hats, and that's what they did. And to that degree, they, by reviving, gentrifying those um, 70s films, they, those serials, they uh, infantilize their audience, I think.
1: And one of the things that also surprised me to read in the book was about the kind of vast amount of money that you can make from Christian films, which I guess it's one of those things where there's a difference between what gets the kind of critical attention and what makes all the money, right? We had this conversation about around the end of Mad Men, which by the time that it was finished was being watched by about sort of, you know, less than a million people on AMC, but was this kind of huge cultural event, right? Whereas... Notoriously, the most watched sitcom in Britain is called Mrs. Brown's Boys and features a middle-aged Irish man dressed up as a woman, making sort of jokes about his, you know, mother and you know, then like a lot of mother-in-law jokes, right? And it's just watched by ten million people, but no one ever kind of goes, "Oh, what does it say about Britain today?" And that kind of cultural and mainstream disconnect, particularly in the case of, um, you talk about evangelical films and the Passion of the Christ, which I, you know, was a reason why it was written about that because it was Mel Gibson, but there are other things that just go completely under the radar.
2: Yeah, I mean, there, I mean, one of the reasons they make a lot of money is because. Because the budgets are tiny, you know they they make the, move. Some of these movies cost, you know, ten million dollars is a, is a big budget for those kinds of movies, and they are under the radar, and um, but they're not under the radar for the studios. Like Sony started a kind of a religious, um, R, you know, division to make these films, and um, one of the interesting things that you see in the Left Behinds, which is a extremely popular series of books, and there have been a couple of films based on them, uh, is that uh, uh, the same kind of escaping the human that you see in Avatar on the far left, you see in the evangelical films on the far right, where they're um, fusing with, not fusing with 10-foot-tall blue aliens, but fusing with Christ.
1: Right. Right. Wow, okay. So
2: anything to escape the human on the far left and the far right. So both extremes seem to agree on that. And it's the center that still doubles down on the human.
1: That's interesting. And I I hadn't really thought until, um, I think I remember i reading a piece by uh, Emily Nussbaum in The New Yorker about Twilight. And the and Twilight's parable is a kind of parable of Christian abstinence, right? But it's one of those, right. like to take that line from Tina Fey in Mean Girls, you know, you have sex and if you have sex you will die. It's kind of got that, you know, it's got that really very... Christian preachy aspect to it about the, the, you know, the need to kind of repress your feelings, which I don't think I'd fully, because it's just so weird and all the bit about falling in love with your own kind of granddaughter or imprinting on people and werewolves howling in the night. You kind of don't see the kind of Christianity at the heart of it, I guess.
2: Well, but, you know, compare compare the, um, that's uh, Twilight Saga with uh, True Blood, where uh, Suki fails to um, become a vampire in uh, Twilight Saga, um, what's her name, um, succeeds. Yeah. And she does become a vampire and she says...
1: But she has to become a vampire because she's got pregnant, right? And she's giving birth and he gives her a sort of cesarean be, be, with his teeth, which is a right. uh, whole well, nother universe but even witness. But
2: be, even before she becomes pregnant, he insists on that. She doesn't. She wants to become a vampire from the very start and because that's who she feels she really is. You know, uh, she says, "I'm fi- I'm feeling you know finally fulfilled now as a vampire because I was always some somehow a vampire at heart." So you can break those boundaries I- that that uh, True Blood insisted on retaining.
1: Mm, that's interesting. The other thing that I think you you mentioned briefly in the book is about the kind of the backlash to what that people see is the feminization of popular culture. You know, we now have a female Doctor Who. There was Ray in Star Wars was the first kind of female lead in that. Um, what do you think is driving the huge anxiety? Because when you the huge anxiety over it because when you quote the raw figures it's still a, like hollywood is still incredibly male dominated in terms of the people who get paid most men get far more speaking lines in films you know it's it's not you know it's, it's not as much as i would love this it's not the radical feminists sadly have not rampaged through hollywood no, with they their haven't, but
2: but but even seeing women in important roles is so rare that it pops out at you so that You know, Rogue One, the Star Wars, uh, Rogue One and Star Wars stories, uh, there was a tremendous amount of uh, backlash against the fact that um, uh, women had such uh, important roles. And there was an article in the New York Times about how, um, you know, the Lucasfilm is now run by uh, Kathleen Kennedy, and the writing team of the Star Wars franchise has been, um, uh, you know, diversified. By including lots of women and people of color, uh, and that's the first time that's ever happened, I think. I mean, especially in a franchise like that, and it's reflected in the content of the movies.
1: Yeah, I think it. I think it's. It feels such a disproportionate backlash for something that feels, to me, quite incremental. Um, and I will way, I was surprised there wasn't more of a backlash to. Black Panther, because I thought that was quite a, a radical film, and quite a lot. Of, I mean, again, to talk to your point earlier, one in which you know Killmonger is explicitly somebody who is has been made a villain because of America's foreign wars. Right, that is quite a challenging thing to put in front of a, a country that you know just voted for Donald Trump.
2: Well, see, I I didn't. I mean, you certainly that's there, but I also think he's made a villain because he's a black militant, and he's got. A chip on his shoulder which is 300 300 years of slavery mm. you know uh, or you know and th- that seemed to me that popped out as me uh, t- to me m- as more important than he is true it's true it's true that he's a cia you know operative um and the conflation of the two i mean the politics of that movie are completely confusing and all over the place i mean you know who is t'challa is he uh, malcolm x is he uh Huey Newton, is he Martin Luther King? Uh,
1: but that is a strain that comes a lot. A lot of the things that we talked about today is that kind of the Mar- Malcolm X versus Martin Luther King, you know, the kind of the the radical, the window-breaking radical versus the kind of somebody who's trying to achieve incremental training, like the suffragette versus the you know, suffragette.
2: Or, or is he Donald Trump because he's a Wakanda firster, the way Trump is an America firster. And at the end, you know, after people are leaving the theater, during while people are leaving the theater during the tail credits, He makes a speech to the United Nations. was a totally centrist speech. We should all be one uh, tribe. We should build bridges, not um, walls. You know, that's something out of Hillary Clinton's campaign.
1: Yeah, but he is also a hereditary monarch who's just kind of sees power in coup d'état. Exactly, a <laughs> I did heredi- think that coming out. I was like, why am I on the side of this hereditary monarch rather than the the guy who is kind of standing up to? Yeah, that in kind of ideal of inherited power that you just get to yeah. be king because your dad was and, king, and and,
2: and 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 you keep it by trials of force by beating you know the shit out of anybody who opposes you.
1: I, yeah, again, another movie that I enjoyed, despite feeling quite confused by its politics. Um, let's just end by um, uh, just give us a couple of, I mean, you must watch an enormous amount of films and televisions, uh, television programs. Give me a couple of things that people might not have heard of that you think are really worth checking out.
2: Well, as I said, I, I just watched uh, A French Village, which is fantastic.
1: What is that on Netflix? It's on Netflix. Uh, no, no, I'm hours. sorry,
2: it's not on Netflix. It's on, I think it's on Hulu now. And one of the w- frustrating things is these series. You know, the contract runs out with the service, and then they move to a different service. So, it's five seasons on on Hulu, and then two seasons on something called MHZ, I believe, which is a, a essentially a European or international service. Uh, I, again, Ozarks. I think the second season of Ozark is very good. Um, you know, uh, Spiral. You know. I hear very good things about Spiral. A French French village has a couple of the Spiral actors in it. So uh, if you become fond of them, you can follow them through another 72 hours of shows. Uh, (laughs) uh, And uh, let's see, what have I watched lately? You know, again, it all sort of um, fuses together. There's a couple of British shows that are terrific, like Line of Duty. um,
1: uh, Everyone's very into... The guy who wrote Line of Duty, Jim Mercurio, has got a series on... Um, called The Bodyguard which is, has kind that. of returned really fascinating has returned to event viewing in that it has not been dumped all in one go online it is something that people there's genuine, genuine like cliffhangers which is something that people have just had not feel that they don't haven't had for a long time
2: I've, somebody else was telling me about that and we'll see if that catches on which is an interesting idea because it was so exciting to be able to binge a show for 10, 10 episodes and not have to wait for you know uh, for the, to the resolution of the cliffhangers,
1: but I do miss that. I mean, one of the things like I know I'm slightly obsessed with Succession, but I watched it at a completely different time to all of my friends. I watched it after about five friends had recommended it to me, and then I kind of then went back, and it was not the same experience as it would have been had we all watched it at the same time. And I kind of I do definitely miss that communal viewing experience. So I wonder if it might return in some form.
2: Well, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of good shows on Showtime, which has always been a sort of weak sister to, um, no offense. To um, uh, to HBO, but yeah. now they've got you know uh, Ray Donovan and um, uh, which is Lee
1: Schreiber and Eddie Marsan, is that right? Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. It's, which I which I think has been pretty much ignored that show for some unknown reason. Mm. Um, and, uh, and a lot of other, and a lot of other good shows. Homeland, of course, which is a terrific show. I think it's starting its last season, unfortunately, by, you know, by some of the, uh, 24 producers who made that show. It's not quite as right wing as 24, no. but it's, it, you can see the similarities. Um, it's interesting. I, you know, I always felt there was a certain element of sexism in Homeland because she's a, you know, uh, Carrie Matheson is a, um, a heroine very much like um, um, Jack Bauer, because she goes off and does what she wants, and she's constantly breaking the law. But she's portrayed as bipolar, and he's perfectly normal. You know, in other words, yeah.
1: Was well, he'd have to really in real life be a psychopath to, be yeah, able to he, do all he, those
2: he, things? Yeah, he, and he is a psychopath essentially, but it, he's never he's never spent any time in uh, you know with a shrink or uh, been committed the way she has. You know, so. Why, why is she, uh, you know, a mental patient and he's not for basically the same behavior?
1: Well, on, the, on, on that question, we'll leave it. Thank you very much. That's Peter Biskin, and the book is out now. Thank you. Ah, mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Kaskers.com, we make this experience easy.